0: So the project was, can you create a global citizens movement based in this global identity where people have solidarity with each other, whether you're in Copenhagen or you're in Ghana?
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life,
0: a politics-free podcast about living a
1: happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Jeremy Hyman's is a professional stirrer. Co-founder of GetUp, of ours and Purpose, he specialises in disrupting traditional power networks. With Henry Timms, he's just written a book called New Power, about the way that our hyper-connected world has changed its conception of power. From Black Lives Matter to Brew Dogs, the book looks at corporations, voters and changemakers' need to operate in a radically new power environment. I've known Jeremy since 2004 when we were classmates at Harvard Kennedy School, and it's a delight to catch up with him and see how his world shaping has continued in the 14 years since then. Jeremy, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thank you, Andrew. It's so good to see you again and to be here. So
1: you're a stirrer from a a very early age. What shaped that?
0: So uh, I was, yes, I was a very um, intense child and, a, uh, and an activist from a very young age. I had this uh, sort of strange career toward the end of uh, the Cold War. This was sort of the late 80s uh, where there were these children who would sort of go around the world as peace ambassadors trying to make the case for, uh, for ending the Cold War. And I was one of these kids on this very strange circuit in the late 80s. And, uh, and I was uh, you know, also very interested in, in, in domestic politics as well. And so you know, my earliest memories of politics, you know, at age seven, I was handing out pro-immigration leaflets uh, on the eve of the 1984 election. Uh, I, I vividly remember my first memory of politics being watching Malcolm Fraser in tears conceding the 83 election, at, uh, I think I was about five years old at that point. And, uh, and, yeah, and so I had this... How, how did you feel? This is a, this is a litmus test, right? Uh,
1: Graham Richardson says he, la- he laughed, others felt sorry for Fraser.
0: I think I tend to feel quite sorry for people. But, I, I, you know, I also really liked Bob Hawke, so um, I don't think I was unhappy about mm. the outcome. Um, but, uh, but I, um, I definitely... Uh, I had some compassion. It was the drama of it that struck me at the, at the time. So, um, yeah, so I had that, that sort of childhood always fascinated by politics... And, you know, as I got older, I sort of figured out that I think some of that came from um, my, uh, my family story. So my father was born in an attic, hiding from the Nazis, spent the first kind of uh, uh, almost 18 months of his life in hiding. Um, and so the stories of my childhood were very much those stories. And so uh, that was, I think, shaped my, perhaps my anxiety about some of the world's problems. Mm. Um, and also a, a desire to kind of uh, try to fix them, even though that was uh, wildly implausible.
1: What city was your father in, uh, when... in, in? In
0: Holland, in Tilburg. And what made them come to Australia? Well, so my dad, um, you know, I think they, they came to Australia in the mid-50s, and, you know, obviously this was in that wave of post-war immigration, uh, and I think also, I think they just didn't want to the Cold War was raging in Europe and, and I think my grandparents were like, let's just get out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Let's start a new life away from the spectre of war. Uh, so that, that I think was why they moved. And you were then
1: educated at Sydney Boys High, Sydney University, Harvard Kennedy School. Um, to, what did you learn from at each of those places? What were the most important things?
0: Well, you know, they're all great in their own way. Uh, Sydney Boys High was... Uh, was a great place for learning how to vigorously debate. I think, and argue. I, I used to. I was definitely a very active uh, debater, uh, which um, which I feel like in Australia is is more of a deep tradition than it is. If you go to America, the people who are involved in debating are suspicious characters like Ted Cruz. Uh, so, so, um, so yeah. I, uh, I I really enjoyed um, that, and I think I enjoyed that environment. That that jousting. Um, and um, the critical thinking. And then I think uh, Sydney Uni, um, I think similarly. You know, there are, there are a bunch of people there that I really admired and learned from, and I definitely think having then gone to um, the US for graduate school, you know, you are struck by the fact that the sometimes the, the posture of the graduate student in the US or the student in the US is like they're there to kind of absorb, whereas the posture of the student in... Uh, in Australia is more, they're there to question and challenge and, 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 and question assumptions. So I remember studying, um, what, I don't know if it's still called this, but economics as a social science, which was sort of the breakaway from the, uh, the mainstream economics department. Uh, you know, and I didn't agree with all of it, but it was, it was a very interesting, um, you know, again, it was a very interesting frame, um, you know, with which to, to engage with the world. And I obviously majored in, I majored in government, um, which is a great department. Um, and I had just a lot of freedom to do really cool stuff. Um, I remember I wrote a thesis on uh, the global financial crisis and the and proposals to address financial speculation, things like the Tobin Tax. And I was lucky enough at uh, age 21 to go to the UN and, and sort of talk my way into these great meetings for my thesis with, like, Janet Yellen... Uh, Paul Volcker, Joe Stiglitz, the full array. <laughs> I think they, they I would walk into these meetings and then they'd see me and they'd be like, How did this get on my calendar? <laughs> but it was great. And so, you know, I mean it was
1: it was a lot of a lot of fun and a lot of freedom. So then the Iraq War comes along, and, and that sounds for you to have been a a, a catalyzing experience in terms of uh, uh, wanting to start something. Uh, you and our mutual friend, David Madden, are sitting in Bondi Beach in uh, December 2004. And you have an idea for an organisation which might maintain the energy that has come out of the, uh, the Iraq protests. Tell me about that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think we, you know, David and I, at, uh, back in the Kennedy School days, you know, we would, we would meet um, pretty regularly... Uh, and just kind of think we're always interested in like the new models you know uh, and as, as you know because we had many of these conversations and you you wrote this terrific book with David and others uh, on new models for Australia imagining Australia um, and so uh, we were always thinking about what those next frontiers were and so it, uh, we were noticing in this early in the early days of the 2004 presidential election that there was um, the, you know, this group MoveOn.org had emerged kind of largely out of the Iraq war moment, although it had existed before then. And uh, the, uh, George Soros and others were funding interesting work at this intersection of uh, sort of politics, technology, uh, you know, new ways to imagine politics. So this was a really exciting time. This was also the time of the Dean campaign, mm. which we la- now largely remember as not having succeeded, but really laid the groundwork for uh, President Obama's campaign and it was a remarkable campaign in many ways. And so we were just excited about figuring out how to contribute to that and so we, we, we went to the US and got involved with campaigning against the Iraq War. Um, which was fascinating. And a lot of that campaigning was about figuring out how to use the internet to mobilise people in these new, in these new mm. ways. And so we learned a ton from that. And that, that's really what inspired us to start GetUp because we'd seen how these new ways of mobilising people at scale, raising money at scale in small donations, um, really spreading messages in new ways, um, could transform politics. And it did ultimately transform politics in the US by the time the Obama election came around. Um, and so we wanted to bring some of that thinking and that methodology back to Australia. You know, at a time when having re-elected George Bush, you know, equally depressing, we'd re-elected John Howard in, at roughly the same time, if I remember correctly. Uh, and so we, you know, we were sort of thinking, well, what, what might it look like to reinvigorate you know, what we thought of as progressive politics in Australia. We didn't think about it in terms of parties. We thought about it in terms of values. And you distinguish in new power between
1: uh, movements driven by issues and movements driven by, driven by values. Um, talk to me about uh, what uh, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party have in common.
0: Well, you know, they have, I think they have an element in common and an element not in common. So you can think of both the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Tea Party. They both had this, uh, initially, this surge of new power energy that was quite decentralised, um, that came, uh, you know, and emerged very organically. Now, the difference was that the Occupy Wall Street movement was sort of ideologically committed to staying that way, to not having anyone institutionalise it, to not having it be appropriated, to kind of having this consensus-based decision-making, which was reflected in the kind of the circles, the assemblies, I should say, at Zuccotti Park, in which everybody had a voice, uh, and that meant that everybody spoke for a very long time, and decisions were not made very quickly. Now, what happened with the Tea Party is, even though there was a genuine grassroots, organic dimension to that, um, actors sort of swooped in quite quickly, and sort of took that energy and turned it into kind of more formal expressions of political power. Mm-hmm. You know, PACs and organisations and pushing candidates into, you know, into the Republican primary system. And so, you know, it, it's two very different stories. I don't think it's a super simple story. So in in that in our language, you know, you're using both new power and old power, you know, in the Tea Party situation, right? You're using power as currency, Mm. and power as current. Um, so they, they power as currency, they became very feared in Republican primaries because they brought muscle and might and money into those primaries. They were very well funded in order to edge out more traditional Republican candidates, more moderate Republican candidates, but they also had this surge of new power energy. That new power energy dissipated, but the institutions that took the energy initially kind of um, endured for a while. The Occupy trajectory is a bit different um, I think the Occupy movement was very influential in getting, you know, impact in uh, income inequality issues on the, on the agenda in, throughout the West. And you see Piketty, you see Corbyn, you see Sanders kind of emerging a little bit out of the energy and the space that was created by that movement. But the movement as it was, you know, largely dissolved, partly because of the things that I described, because of its commitment to kind of the purest expression of new power. So, having built GetUp, uh, many people would have then
1: decided to devote their lives to uh, to running it. Um, but you and Dave made a pretty conscious decision to step back quite quickly, and you know, within two years, you'd founded Avaz. Uh, tell me, tell me about Avaz.
0: Yeah, so this was a um, an organisation where we had um, actually this. It all comes back to the Kennedy School. So there were people, um, uh, people at the Kennedy School, particularly this guy, Rick and Patel who um, we'd met through the Harvard Living Wage campaign, which was sort of another really interesting exposure to student activism at the time when we were there. And so we'd gotten to know Rickon, and Rickon um, had also been experimenting with these really interesting models in 2004, uh, you know, these new ways of mobilising people, you know, with, a, with a, a couple other people, including Tom Periello, who went on to become a congressman in, in, in the US and is a, a really terrific... An important figure in progressive politics here in the U.S. now, and so we'd both been experimenting with these things and sort of got together um, as a group and uh, and and sort of conceived of ours and uh, which Rickon um, has run uh, from the beginning and, and ever since. And so it's a it's a it was another fascinating kind of uh, project in that it sort of um, it essentially was about creating a transnational political identity. So we knew that the people who cared about the Iraq War in Australia had a lot in common with the people who cared about the Iraq War in, you know, in, in, in Europe mm. uh, and even in Brazil you know, and other parts of the world. And we knew that it was possible to create a, you know, a transnational identity. So, so the project was, can you create a global citizens' movement based in this global identity... Where people have solidarity with each other, whether you're in Copenhagen or you're in Ghana, uh, we're all you know we're all part of this one you know big global yeah. citizenry. So it was this it was this very explicitly global, very explicitly transnational project, um, and it used the same methodology that Ava, that uh, get up and move on um, were based on. So we'd gotten to know that methodology in Australia and were able to apply it um, here. And so it was and has been a fascinating thing to watch, um, to watch grow um, and develop. And, you know, obviously Avaz scaled very quickly. Um, And David and I were not involved for very long. We sort of then moved on to the next big thing. So there was this period of uh, founder, you know, there was this rapid fire entrepreneurial period where we got involved in co-founding a bunch of things one after the other. Um, which, was, which was fascinating um, but the, yeah the Avaz model has been um, has been extraordinary and um, you know it, it does demonstrate that there is an appetite for that the other thing that we were doing with Avaz was sort of responding to the sort of deficiencies of the, the sort of bigger international NGOs which weren't effective at mobilising ordinary people they were more institutionalised so this was sort of about going direct to people and giving individuals stuff they, they could do beyond just giving money um, and giving those people more agency. And, you know, obviously that model now doesn't feel fresh at all because, you know, this, this, in the wake of these new organisations, many replicated the model. And I think email campaigning in particular has become pretty stale um, and pretty commoditized. But at the time, it felt really fresh to people. And it was a way of essentially telling people what was happening in the world and telling them what they could do about it, under this broader rubric of a common worldview that the members of groups like Avaz and GetUp shared.
1: And I like the way you talk in New Power about the idea that it's only a movement if it moves without you. Right. Uh, which presumably shaped to some degree your decision to step back from both of ours and uh, and get up. That's right. Uh, yeah. And, and then in two years later, 2009, you've uh, co founded Purpose, uh, whose offices we're sitting in on Fifth, a- Fifth Avenue at the moment.
0: Uh, tell us about Purpose, what it does and what its purpose is. Well, yeah, and before I do that, I mean, to, to pick up on that thought, I mean, a big kind of part of the the, the thinking behind GetUp and Avaz and these kinds of groups is it isn't about the traditional charismatic leader model. So the leaders, the staff, the leaders of the, these organisations are largely in the background so that the members can have agency. And what it also means is that you don't get this dynamic where you get one famous person who has a fall from grace, you know, mm-hmm. think... Uh, Lance Armstrong, Livestrong, he had this huge cancer charity that really suffered after, you know, his fall. Um, You know, this dependency, and we talk about this a lot in the book, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is partly premised on a leadership philosophy that is about many leaders, Mm. um, but no one superstar that takes up all the space, which is very different to the kind of model of the um, charismatic male um, preacher, that had been more the model for leadership in previous um, iterations of the racial justice movement. So, we speak uh, a lot with uh, Alicia Garza in the book about that philosophy, one of the co founders of Black Lives Matter. So, yeah, we don't believe that the right model is, you know, make it revolve around the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, and indeed, it was funny, we got um, in the early days of GetUp, you know, we, we were looking for our first executive director. I won't name names, but Two very high-profile people, two very high-profile Australians, one had been the leader of a political party, Uh, the other a major international um, sort of UN official, um, applied to run GetUp. And it struck us that both those people were terrific, but, you know, that would have been a disaster for GetUp, because it would have just been about that person.
1: Right, right.
0: So, tell me about purpose. Sure. (laughs) So Purpose is the the home for the kind of work that I do in the world, really. And so it's been been going for uh, almost a decade now, coming up to a decade, not quite, um, about about nine years. And really, Purpose is a mothership for movement building, for figuring out new ways to mobilise people. And um, so within its rubric, there are many things going on. So we have um, folks here in the U.S., um, Uh, in multiple places here, our headquarters are here in New York, where we're sitting. We have people in the UK, in Brazil, in India, uh, and even a couple of people now in in Kenya. And the work is about finding new ways to um, shift public narratives and mobilize people. So we're always interested in what that next model is. So to the point that I made about um, Avaz or GetUp, even those models now need evolving and changing, and and we're doing that. So we kind of work in these two ways. One is we have um, uh, an agency that works with um, uh, big nonprofits, big foundations, people like the Gates Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, Bloomberg Philanthropies, um, uh, you know, and many others. Um, uh, and, and, you know, some of the world's largest NGOs and some big NGOs here in the US. And we work with them on, uh, you know, new uh, movement building campaigns and experiments. The other half of what we do is we have these things that we call labs and our labs are essentially where we take a big issue area so i'll give you an example our climate lab and we rather than create a new ngo what we do is we create a lab in which we have campaigners creatives technologists data experts policy experts all together figuring out um, using kind of an experimental methodology Uh, new ways to shift beyond the base, Mm. to develop new narratives on climate. We test a lot of stuff and then we scale the stuff that really works. And through that work, we've done some remarkable stuff, I think, um, in places like India, uh, you know, championing kind of clean energy policies, um, uh, focusing people on air pollution and the nexus between that and climate change. Um, We've done some really interesting work on Syria and the Syrian crisis um, uh, over the years Um, we work a lot on refugees and migration issues in the US in Europe Mm. Um, we work on gun violence here in the US Um, and so it's a it's a it's a fascinating kind of context Uh, and it, it sort of suits me because to your point about starting lots of things the reason that purpose makes sense for me is that we get to start lots of things. So yeah as you say it's sort of a, a rubric into which other, other things sit.
1: I, I like in New Power how you use a video game metaphor here talking about the old power as being like uh, Tetris and the new power as being like, uh, like Minecraft. Exactly. Uh, and yeah. as the father of three little boys who are uh, massively into Minecraft that you appeals, would uh, that, appeals right? a great it's, deal. It's a potent metaphor. Do you find there's a bit of a tension between running a company which is invariably hierarchical and, and giving employees, what you call in the book, a, a sense of founder feeling, that, uh, that, that that notion that they're empowered?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, organisations are tough, aren't they? You know, and, and they're also necessary. So, you know, as you know from having read the book, Andrew, we we don't argue for... Um, the radical decentralisation of everything for the sake of it. We really say that the most effective actors in the world today are the people who are blending old and new power. So, in fact, we use the example on guns of the NRA, uh, you know, the bad guys, um, who are effectively blending uh, a very fearsome uh, institutional kind of brand that um, politicians, you know, quiver at the mere thought of with a very potent new power base of people that they energize and agitate um, both inside their membership and well beyond it so this capacity to blend power is important and so when I think about a place like Purpose it's also about this combination of being really structured and smart about how we do campaigning in a way Purpose is about the professionalization of campaigning um, uh, and people who really have a craft of doing this kind of um, new, new generation work uh, and at the same time, our labs methodology it allows people to do the kind of um, more freeform experimentation um, you know that I think produces really interesting um, ideas.
1: So you have this uh, four quadrant model of the of the world, crowds, yeah. castles, co-opters, and cheer- cheerleaders. yeah,. Um, Tell me. Let, let's go through those 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 four areas. Sure. Tell me, t- tell me about uh, crowds. Black Lives Matter, Wikipedia, uh, uh, two of your
0: crowd players. Right. So we so in the book we sort of overlay new power models and new power values, and uh, and old power models and values. So the crowds quadrant is the new power models and new power values. So Black Lives Matter, you know, obviously has a very potent new power model that is based on. Uh, harnessing this energy of the connected crowd. It is uh, largely, it's leaderful. It does not look traditional and institutional and hierarchical. The values that they embody are also consistent with these values, values of radical transparency, placing the kind of a normative, an emphasis on collaboration, um, uh, you know, uh, informal governance, uh, more loose, more transient forms of affiliation. Um, and so you've got a kind of Black Lives Matter over in that top right, but even within that quadrant, you have models that are much more traditionally constructed. So we, you know, we, we say that Airbnb as a company is also a crowd model in that it, you know, its model is entirely based on our participation mm. um, and its values, certainly in comparison to an Uber uh, or a Facebook, we argue, are very invested in giving agency to their hosts and their community in ways that are quite different to those other companies. So then if you sort of move over to the left, we, we have the co-opters. And the co-opters, we think, are the most fascinating group in the world today uh, and, in some cases, the most dangerous because they're the people who, who have this mastery of new power. They understand how to harness the energy um, of, a, of a connected crowd. But um, they, are, uh, they are basically extractive in one form or another. They're, so this is Uber, Facebook yes uh, uber Facebook and you know we have an overlay in the book um, uh, about leaders so we sort of take the same principles and we apply it to individual leadership styles and you know obviously Trump is very much in the co-opted quadrant and we can you know unpack that more although I know you have a ban on politics in the podcast Andrew so we'll respect that do you want me to keep unpacking the quadrant? Keep on, on keep, keep, keep on keep on going. Okay, so you're going to go to cheerleaders or castles uh, next. We'll, so bottom uh, bottom right is the cheerleaders. The cheerleaders are interesting. Um, these are the people who uh, are embracing new power uh, values, but are still pretty traditionally organised. Mm. So we we talk about companies like Patagonia or Unilever, who are embracing quite new values and norms, but who are still basically traditional companies. Like mm. Patagonia makes. Jackets, the crowd is not involved with that process, and uh, we are asked to buy them. Uh, But they also are asking their consumers to lobby the Trump administration. They're also asking their consumers, in some cases, not to buy their jackets um, uh, because of a desire to contribute to kind of closed-loop consumption. Mm. And uh, and on the leadership level, you know, we describe uh, President Obama as a cheerleader in the sense that he started as a campaigner, as a crowd leader, you know, incredible new power, uh, model, you know, tens of millions of people participating in that campaign, espousing these new power values. We all remember famously, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And then, but, 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 but in terms of his presidency, he didn't really bring that movement into office with him. He ran the, he, he played the role of president in a very traditional way. Mm. Now, now that we're living under Trump, we all appreciate the, uh, the value of a more traditional president, but, but certainly it was, not a, it was not one in which he brought that movement into, into office. And then finally on the left, you've got the castles, and these are pretty simple. These are, these are old power models and old power values, and most institutions around us operate on this model.
1: Uh, so we think about, uh, you talk, you're talking about the Nobel Prize, Apple, the National Security Administration, right. uh, the, these, these, these sorts of traditional agencies of corporate and, and government power there. Yes,
0: exactly. And, and, and the Apple point is there to make the point that you don't... It being a technolo- Using new technology does not make you new power. Mm. That there are many people using uh, new technology, using social media in profoundly old power ways. And so this is really about how you use technology and the mindset and method with which you do it rather than the use of it.
1: So you talk in the book about a, a number of uh, movements which have in common that they're actionable, connected and extensible. Yeah. Um, let's go through a, f- a few of them and uh, it'll just get you to, uh, to unpack what made them work. Uh, yeah. uh, the Ice Bucket Challenge? Right. So
0: we all remember how joyfully irritated we were by this Ice Bucket Challenge. Uh, but You did th- one, I take it? Uh, I didn't. I did not. I'm, sh- I'm ashamed to tell you that I did not. I only wrote about it afterward. Uh, and so the Ice Bucket Challenge is, is understanding the mechanics that made it work um, can teach us a lot about how to make an idea spread today. So you remember the first principle there, it's actionable. So uh, basically, the, the, rather than it being an idea that we're looking at, that we're consuming, that we're admiring, uh, we're actually asked to do something. The thing we're asked to do is basically dunk ice on ourselves. Um, but it's connected in the sense that the dynamic that made the Ice Bucket Challenge spread was that at the end of that video, you challenged your friends. So I would say, I now challenge Andrew um, to do this too. And the third element is what we call extensibility. It was extensible. That means it, 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 people could adapt it in their own ways. And that explosion of creativity, the fact that, you know, Patrick Stewart, the Star Trek star, turned the Ice Bucket Challenge into just putting a couple of cubes of ice in a nice whiskey glass, pouring some whiskey in and signing a check. Uh, But other people, you know, did it in these other ways. That's part of what made it spread because people could make it their own. Mm. And, you know, the ability to create an idea that's actually unformed, where you're not trying to own the idea, you're not slapping your brand on that idea, um, and where people can kind of uh, adapt it um, is very potent. So this is this principle that we lay out in the book, this ACE framework for how you propagate and spread your idea, whether you're a dentist trying to promote dental health or you're, you know, uh, unfortunately, you're a terrorist group trying to promote an ideology of violence. Uh, Giving Tuesday? So Giving Tuesday is is an incredible initiative that was started by Henry Timms, my co-author and collaborator in all of this work. And Giving Tuesday is another ace idea. So basically, uh, the model behind Giving Tuesday is... Uh, In America, there's this thing called Black Friday. Black Friday is a a consumption orgy that happens right after Thanksgiving where everything goes on sale. And after that, when the internet emerged, this new thing came up called Cyber Monday, where all the online retailers uh, go on sale. So Henry thought, well, what if we created a day of giving back, a day of philanthropy, after all this consumption? And so the way he did it was clever. So he runs a big institution here in New York called the 92nd Street Y um it's sort of a 150 year old venerable um you know um institution the the impulse in a situation like that when you have an idea like that is to call it the 92nd street wise giving tuesday and to try to own it maybe license the idea to other organizations mm. maybe make them pay something to use the 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 the, the uh, trademark but instead he created a completely ownerless movement it's actionable in the sense that um, the action is you run your own campaign to raise money or give money. It's connected in the sense that it's giving people this sense of higher purpose by creating this narrative around philanthropy um, and giving back after all this consumption. And it's extensible in the sense that people could do whatever they wanted with it. So in, in uh, you know, some people call, created Giving Shoes Day and other people called it Giving Blue Day in the case of a university in Michigan. Everybody adapted it. In Singapore, Giving Tuesday is not one day, it's one week. But because the movement is ownerless and essentially all um, that is done from the centre is provide a set of tools and resources that people can use, it's spread and now it raises hundreds of millions of dollars of money every year for um, charity. And you've talked also, and
1: one of the things I find fascinating about the book is it delves into the way in which corporations are attempting to uh, to, to do something similar. Um, t- tell us about uh, adult fans of Lego.
0: <laughs> so there may be some, some. I bet you some of your listeners are afols. Are adult fans of Lego are the adults who never stopped loving Lego and playing with Lego. And um, uh, some years back when... Lego was kind of financially in crisis, a new CEO who'd been brought in realized that the path back to greatness was not to ignore these weird adults who were still playing Lego, but actually to embrace them. So there were all of these self-organized groups of uh, adult fans of Lego around the world. They were creating amazing uh, models, uh, and uh, he basically leaned into it. And he hired a bunch of people and created a whole department focused on building a community uh, mm. of affoles. And those affoles became his marketing engine, his product development pipeline. He created a, a kind of an open innovation model where people could essentially compete to, um, you know, suggest new models that they that they'd built and designed. People would vote. Uh, and the most uh, popular models which then have this inbuilt fan base would get made by Lego, and the revenue would be shared with the creator. So they built this whole business around the Afols, um, and it, it helped to save Lego, um, which is uh, which is a story of how even a very, you know, old power, you know, very complex institution like a, a multinational like Lego could could use new power um, to, you know, really reinvigorate itself. So.
1: Given all, all the all the change that you've seen and, and helped bring about over the course of the of the uh, kind of fifteen years you've been professionally working in this uh, this community in the United States, uh, where do you see purpose being in a decade's time, and where do you see Jeremy Hyman's being?
0: <laughs> so I think you know if if purpose purpose's kind of truest um, version of itself, I think, is as a kind of catalyst for uh, more and more movement building and innovation. So we passionately believe that, for example, um, with this, all, these, all this new wealth coming online, you know, everybody is now investing that philanthropically, which in one way is good and in the other way is sort of challenging the role of government in ways that are quite problematic. But, but nonetheless, that's a reality. So we believe that more of that philanthropy should be going to real power-building, movement-building work rather than just to technocratic solutions. So in a perfect world, we've helped to make that argument to those philanthropists and helped to um, get funding for um, grassroots social movements around the world. And we're providing this hub of innovation where whether you're fighting against uh, white supremacy uh, in America... Uh, or you were trying to create a positive narrative around immigration in France, or you were trying to explain why um, climate change matters in India, um, we, we are working in the background to help make those things happen. So let me
1: ask you a couple of final questions to wrap up. What advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: <laughs> Chill. It's fine. You know, sort of... I you think were very, too tense as a I, child? I was very earnest. Well, I was very earnest. I was very, um, you know, I was, I was sort of very, um, I have the problems of the world on my shoulders. Um, and so, you know, l- literally, rather than like, you know, teenage problems. <laughs> so I think, uh, you know, I think my advice to my younger self would always be um, that, uh, that you shouldn't take it all quite as seriously. And you'll have plenty of time to kind of try to impact the, uh, impact the world. Um, you don't need to try to do that um, quite as earnestly at age 13 try to have a childhood, just a little bit of a childhood. <laughs> what's something you used to believe but no longer do? Well, I think I used to believe that um, moderation would prevail in politics um, when I think what's really happening is that extremism is prevailing. So, you know, I think, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s in politics where, you know, like the, the particularly on the left, the job was to you know, move to the centre and become more palatable and more moderate. Um, and uh, I think one thing that, and I, I sort of, I think, I, I, I thought that was the right political strategy, whatever my own personal um, ideology was. And I think I've certainly realised that I think in, in, in our current context, that's just not right. So um, I, I, don't, mm. I don't have much confidence or hope for centrism in, uh, in, in politics in the West over the next 10 years. When are you most happy? Um, well, you know, I'm most happy when I, I think the sweet spot for me is, especially in terms of my work, is when, um, I see something that I helped to create or start do incredibly well without me actually having to like push it along. Like that's a really satisfying feeling. And so Get Up has been wonderful to watch because, you know, I played this early role, um, imagining it with David. Um, but uh, seeing the incredible work that's been done to take that vision and transform it into this organization, which has real um, uh, capacity to influence um, the, the my country, that's really satisfying. It's more satisfying than the things you've done uh, yourself, in a way.
1: Uh, staying on the happiness vibe, you've uh, as an Aussie living in New York. Do you have any uh, particularly? Uh, happy places that you suggest that uh, that people visiting New York for the first time should go to?
0: (laughs) Well, I met my partner at a beautiful little cafe. So basically the story, Australians will appreciate this, like 10 years ago in New York, there was very little good coffee. So Australians would come and just be outraged by the coffee culture here. And I was one of those people. Uh, But obviously there's been this explosion of of great coffee since then, but uh, there was this terrific place called Abrasso, um, this little hole in the wall in the East Village, and it was this, this guy from the West Coast who would always play uh, either soul music or Brazilian music, and so you'd come in, and it was just this joyous little place, and he was a total um, stickler. You know, there was only full-fat milk, no almond milk, no soy milk. You know, there were, there were only certain things he did, and then his, uh, his girlfriend would make these incredible, like, olive oil cake, and two or three cakes, a bunch of coffee. It was doctrinaire it was fabulous and uh so that's one of my special places and it still exists but it's moved across the road to bigger digs now um which which has lost a bit of its charm but has the upside of um uh, allowing his uh his partner to make more cakes which are something to look forward to every weekend
1: so all aussies uh, particularly get up fans should visit Abrasso in the east village east, New York.
0: east 7th street must go the other thing i'd recommend um so the problem with places like New York is there's always really cool restaurants opening every week and then you're basically in this kind of, you know, hellhole um, of trying to get into one of them. Uh, and uh, so I recommend going to places that were cool in the 90s but still have great food. And I have a list of those if, you, uh, if, if your uh, listeners want them at some point. We will take
1: that and put, the, put it up.
0: Okay, cool. um, what's the most
1: important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy?
0: Well, at a time when I'm on a book tour and um, still um, running my organisation, I don't know that I'm totally nailing that, Andrew. Um, But um, I think you know the thing that helps uh, me is reconnecting with um, the people closest to me. Um, That is basically how I can sort of calm down uh, and 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 refocus. So that, that has been great. And, and the wonderful thing about writing a book actually is that, you know, all your friends come and support you in these wonderful ways. Um, and so you really appreciate them in, in, in deeper ways as a result of this process. And, and people also put up with how busy and distracted you are. And uh, that is something I'm also very grateful for. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Oh, God, so many. I mean, definitely the cake at Abrasso. A lot of cake at Abrasso. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of other guilty pleasures that are uh, appropriately G-rated for this program, Andrew. We'll take it, mate. We'll <laughs> take it, Exactly. Uh, hmm. Well, there's a lot of good trashy television that you know after a day working on, um, you know, climate change or refugees, um, you know, or gun violence or something. You know that that, uh, that you uh, that you can really appreciate. So, uh, right now, uh, just finished season two of Insecure, which is a great show on HBO, which I recommend to everybody. Um, And uh, there's always something, um, uh, usually trashier than that, that that, that I'm watching. Soap operas. And finally,
1: which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I think
0: my dad, in the sense that um, he has, you know, had this extraordinary beginning of his life that, you know... uh, this sort of narrow escape from, 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 uh, from the Nazis. Um, and the stories of my childhood are just like, you know, very, very close to being picked up by the Gestapo um, when they were hiding. And so he takes that experience and I think what was wonderful about his career is he sort of, he, a documentary filmmaker, really chose to make films about other injustices. Um, he also made some great films about the Holocaust, but he kind of took that experience and said, how do we stop other injustices from happening? So he made a very early film, 1969, called What Have, um, what Have You Done With My Country, which was uh, told from an Aboriginal perspective um, that was sort of at the intersection of the, uh, one of the very first films made about the, envir- the modern, essentially a modern environmental movie um, with um, a story about the Aboriginal um, experience. And so I really admire that. And so I think I took a lot from that um, in two ways. One, I think I, I took certainly a lot of my values and politics from him and also from my mum, who is also an immigrant. And so I, I had this immigrant experience that was profoundly important in shaping me and making me see the world as bigger than just Australia. Um, and, um, and, uh, and then I also, I think, I got some of that entrepreneurialism from my dad because you know, every film he made was like a new project. So I think I had a template Mm. for not being too afraid of starting things.
1: Well, Jeremy Hyman's founder, activist and writer. Thanks so much for joining us in the Good Life podcast today. It's a
0: pleasure, Andrew. Great to see you.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week... I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.